0: John chapter 2. i got to say, I'm looking forward to this passage. It's one of the more delightful passages that we will come across in the early chapters of the book of John. Uh, It brings about an introduction to all of the aspects of what Jesus' ministry is about and will do. And so as we come to the passage this morning, I would encourage you, um, there's a lot in this story that's familiar I want you to see it from the perspective of all of Scripture. That's one of our goals this morning, is to see the reality of this being more than just a story of something wonderful that Jesus did. It's actually much more than that. There's a lot going on here, and uh, it's one of, the more, um, one of the more exciting passages that you'll run into, and uh, I want to get started with it. So let's go ahead and do that. When we, when we come to miracles, a lot of us have reactions to miracles uh, simply because, well, actually not simply because, but largely because we don't really run into miracles in our day-to-day life, do we? Not with any regularity. And, and, and when I say not miracles, I don't mean that God's not doing things in the world. What I mean is, he's not interacting in the same manner as he certainly did during the time of Jesus' ministry nor in the same manner as he did in the early days of the apostolic ministry. I mean, literally, when Paul had a handkerchief brush past him, that handkerchief could be carried away to sick people, and it would heal them all. Do you see this going on in the church today? No. Miracles, the miraculous, signs and wonders, these things hold a really unique place for us in Scripture, and from our perspective, it's kind of hard to interact with them well. But the reality is that the people who lived at the time also didn't interact with them well, and Jesus pointed this out. This generation, he would say to them, always wants more signs and wonders. And he specifically had to stop doing signs and wonders for them because they would rest their faith only on those things rather than on the testimony in the word of Christ. The purpose of miracles is not to show off The purposes of signs specifically, that's why they're called signs, is to signify for us something changing in the history of redemption. And so when we see these signs throughout the Gospel of John, John takes more normal things and spins them to show us a reality of what Jesus is doing. Jesus himself is the center and the crux of all of redemptive history. And when he came and his ministry began, a huge transition took place, a transition that had been talked about, that had been looked forward to by all of the prophets, but something that the people of God were only barely conceptualizing the ramifications of. And so John introduces his readers, you and I, to his first sign, And I want you to see it. Let's go ahead and stand in honor of God and his word, and we will read verses 1 through 12 here in John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, When the master of the feast tasted the water, which had now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This was the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Our Father, we stand before your word as servants. We do not desire to change the meanings of your word. We desire to understand them, to love them as you have given them and preserved them, and to seek to have other Christians in our lives love and direct their lives by them. We pray, Father, that our eyes and our mouths are faithful to these things, and that our hearts are as well. Would you challenge in us what needs challenging? We pray in your Son's name. Amen. You may well be seated. Have you heard this story before? I have. I remember hearing it in Sunday school for the first time. I don't know how many of you are of similar age to me, not many, but I was on the tail end of the flannelgram things where you would you would get this remarkable uh, story of, of uh, miracles told with little felt people on a big felt board. And this is one of those ones that for some reason has just stuck in my memory all of these years. This idea of a wedding that's going on, a celebration that's going on, a big pile of jars, and Jesus, and all of a sudden... The water becomes wine, and they take it to the master of the feast and all is well. When you learn things that early in life, you tend to gloss over every time you read it and don't really challenge your preconceptions to it. I want to challenge all of our preconceptions. This is not a story about turning water to wine. This is a story about Jesus. This is a story about what he has come to do. This is a story about what people were looking forward to and what they would have heard reading this. What the people who were his disciples present there with him that day would have perceived. John has already prepared our hearts to look at these stories this way by saying, when we were walking with him, we beheld his glory. And John describes that glory by saying it was glory as of the only begotten of the Father, and he labels it out full of what? Grace and truth. And so when we see his glory manifest, which is exactly what is described here in verse 11, we should be looking for that. We should be looking for signifiers of God's grace and of God's truth in signifying works like this. This is not just a miracle to prove his divinity. In fact, Jesus rarely does miracles just to show or just because he is divine. He does these miracles because it is his ministry of salvation worked out to the people. And so, see the type of miracles he does. He doesn't go out and go, hey, you want to see this rock levitate? Ooh. He doesn't do tricks like this. Could he do it? Absolutely. Could he have turned stones into bread in the temptation of the wilderness? Absolutely. Could he have thrown himself off of the temple and his angels catch him up? Absolutely. He could have done these things. The point of miracles and the miraculous is not to show off. It is to signify the reality of what redemption is at work. And so we're not seeing the water turn into, for instance, blood. We're seeing it turn into wine. And there's a very specific reason for that. We're seeing that these are stone jars, and not pottery. There's a specific reason for that. Everything that John is describing here has very intentional purpose that these jars are described as not just any stone jars, but the ones specifically meant for purification rituals, for the washing of hands before certain habits, that the, that the servants specifically came up and were doing whatever Jesus said to them, even though it made no sense. Now, I don't know about you. When I read this story first as a kid, or heard it, you know, Presented forth. I don't know if somebody's told this or if I just always perceive this. I always thought that the water turned to wine inside the big jars. It didn't. John says specifically that the servants actually drew water out of the jars and carried it in a cup to the master of the feast. And by the time that it got to the master of the feast, it was wine. That is, for me, somehow, a much more significant reality for these servants to have listened to Jesus' words when for them it made no sense to take hand-washing water to the master of the ceremony, putting their own necks on the line. We'll address that when we get there. As Jesus comes back from his temptation, and as he spends his time down by Galilee, and of course we know the story. John the Baptist identifies him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see the basic aspects of the Lamb of God. We've seen this, that it involves both God's judgment and also sacrifice. And Christ was here to do both. First sacrifice, next judgment. But the Lamb of God carries out both of these things. We talked about that as the backdrop. Jesus is here to remove the sins of the world. That's what the Lamb of God does, not by forgiving everybody and not by judging everybody, but by both aspects of his ministry spanning, as we now know, more than 2,000 years, he is the one who's going to remove sin from this world once and for all. For those who are called according to his purpose, it is through forgiveness and atonement and the shedding of his own blood. For those who refuse to trust in him and do not have his covering, it will be through judgment itself. It should not stand as a surprise to us, even before we begin this passage, that wine also holds both of those pictures. Wine is a testament to God's blessing as well as to his wrath. Both of them are carried in that same picture, and Jesus here points to one aspect of it, the overflowing blessing of what it is that Jesus has now come into the world. It is a tremendous thing to behold a sign like this. And while we did not get to see it with our own eyes, it is a privilege to read these things this morning. It's a privilege for us to be able to look at them and to see these things. And I want you to understand the amount of work and the amount of sacrifice that has gone on through church history to preserve words like this means that when we come to something like this, Let us do our best not to come at it with only modern eyes. This is where some of our friends have gone astray in thinking that we know better because we've never seen water turn into wine. We can somehow cast this aside as maybe they were mistaken or maybe something had been switched out. No. Christ who saves, Christ who is himself the creator, as has already been discussed in this text, demonstrates himself to be in control not only of things like water and wine, but of death and resurrection, of walking on water, of raising from the dead, the story of Lazarus, and even of his own resurrection. It should not surprise us to see that the one who created heaven and earth breaks natural laws sometimes. And many people have lost their faith because they do not experience signs and miracles like this But Christian, let me encourage you, we should not expect to see signs and miracles like this. Not in our lifetime. We should expect to run into them in the Word of God, and so we do. That's just a side note. Let's come to the passage. On the third day, that is after the testimony of John the Baptist, they came to Cana in Galilee. There was a wedding being held there that apparently Jesus' whole family was invited to. We don't know who the wedding is for. It's not important. Why? It's not mentioned. There's a lot of people that have a lot of theories. Nathaniel, one of the disciples, is from Cana. Some people think it was him or his brother or something like this. It does not matter. The reality is that there's a wedding in Cana of Galilee and they travel there. It takes three days to travel there from the Jordan. And so this is them traveling there the whole time. So on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out... The mother of Jesus said to him, just as a matter of fact, they have no wine. Now, let me stop here for a second and just take a quick note. Why do you think that that was going on? Why was Mary coming to Jesus about this? We're told specifically that he's never done any miracles before this. This will be his first one. And so then there's not like this history of him going, hey, Jesus, we're out of milk today. I got this thing of water. Can you do this thing? No history of signs like this. No history of carrying these on. We know from scripture that such things has happened before, such as in the ministry of Elijah, where the widow's flour and oil never ran out as long as her household continued. Why would Mary come to Jesus about this? And then Jesus respond in this way. Some think it a matter of fact, others think it indication that Mary had something to do with the wedding, and therefore it must have been one of Jesus's brothers or something like this. Again, conjecture, but the reality is Jesus's response shows us some aspect of this. What does he say to her? He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, or, or, or quite literally, my hour is yet. It's not here. Why are you bringing this to me as if this is mine to fix? Now, he is not being condescending. In English, it sounds that way. That's not condescending. That is actually a respectful way to speak to an older woman in their culture. Um, It is a term of endearment. It's kind of like, ma'am, this isn't mine to fix sort of thing. And so when he says, my hour has not yet come, he's expressing something about the reality of what signs are. Now, this is even more fascinating because while his hour has not yet come, a a statement that he will say over and over again throughout the Gospel of John, he still continues to work a sign. And so it seems that there is, at first reading, two sides to this. One is, he says, my hour is not yet come, and then the other is, I'll go ahead and fix this temporal problem. And So what are we dealing with? And that is one of the confusing aspects of the story. So let's see if we can iron it out a bit. When he comes to her and says, my hour is not yet come, he is expressing to her the reality of the kingdom of heaven is not fully here yet. He is not inaugurating it. He is not fully bringing it in yet. That will happen later in the Gospel of John, and he will say it explicitly in the upper room as well as in the high priestly prayer of Christ in John 17. When we get there, we will address it at great length. But the reality of what's going on here is his hour is not yet come. That's about three years into the future. And so when he's saying, my hour is not yet come, he's saying, this is not the time where my kingdom comes into this world and such blessings overflow and everything comes from me. It doesn't work like that. But I'll give you an instance of it. And I'll show you part of the glory of God breaking into this temporal world. And this is why John expresses this in verse 11, that what Jesus was doing here was manifesting or making apparent the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so what does it look like? It looks like solving a problem. Here, it signifies a great spiritual reality of Christ's blessed riches at his own expense, given freely to people that don't deserve it. Now, that's the spiritual aspect of it, but in the temporal world where the sign occurs, it just shows up as water turning into wine a sign of God's blessing and constant provision for his people. Wine was always seen as a matter of this. It was always interpreted as a matter of this. And so when this wedding was going on, and again, weddings could go on for six, seven days in this culture. And so the idea of you coming at a point and the refreshments are out for the people, that's going to cause some certain aspect of Condescension to the people that were hosting the party. The wine runs out. And this is one of those aspects here that when we see now in retroflex, temporal joys and enjoyments of things come to an end. Do we not know it? How many of us pray for the blessings of God, enjoy them for a while, and then see that such things do fleet from us? They're not always here with us. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy them while they're here. It means that the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away, and the Lord's name is to be blessed by his people in both aspects. And here he's addressing the reality, look, temporal blessings, such as wine here at a feast, run out sometimes. And what does Jesus say? This is primarily not my responsibility. It's not like he's going throughout all of Israel and supplying wine to all of the weddings everywhere. No. No. It was a singular occurrence for a singular purpose at a singular time to solve a temporal problem that spoke of eternal things. And every time you come across one of the sign miracles, realize that that's what happens. A temporal solution depicting the spiritual solution that Christ is actually doing. And so when he's raising Lazarus from the dead, for instance, one of the other signs here in the Gospel of John, We should not see this as merely a resurrection about Lazarus. But it's there to show us the significance of what he's doing for all of us. When we see him walking on water in John chapter 6, another sign gift, what has happened? But that the God who is the one controlling wind and waves and everything else, the one who has overseen, created, and made this natural world, is seeing, making, and bringing about a new natural world. All of these things signify something far greater than the simple occurrence. It doesn't mean that somebody down the road in Cana of Galilee who was having another wedding, and if they ran out of wine, that Jesus was somehow obligated to go to them and do the same thing for them. No. The focus is not the wedding, The focus is not even the water turned to wine. The focus is Christ, his ministry, and what he's going to do. And so with that, I want you to see this. They run out of wine. Jesus says to her, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, this is actually more than a tacit agreement to the reality that what's going on is not normal. In the far future, when heaven and earth have become one, and Christ's hour has fully come and his new creation is fully here, what is the implication? When his hour does fully come, it is his job to see to it that his people are well provided for in all aspects and in all ways. And so a lot of people focus on this reality that Jesus doesn't do anything initially until he's asked by the servants about what to do. But what Jesus says is, you're coming to me for temporal blessings. That's not my role yet. That means there is a time in eternity future when such blessings will be fully provided and the norm at all points. We can see this even in our lives now and even in creation now. Jesus speaks of it himself when he says, you worry about what you put on and what you will eat. Go look at the animals. Look at the sparrow of the sky. Look at the flower of the field. Have I not dressed all of these? Have I not fed that sparrow? Have I not, does not one of them drop in the woods without me knowing about it? And again, that's not a teaching about birds and about flowers. That's a teaching about God's provision for his people. And not necessarily here and now. Faithful Christians sometimes are at places where joy is not the norm. Sometimes Christians are at places where they do not see the temporal blessings of God, but it seems that everything is being stripped from them. What we are called to in this passage is never to see God's lack of provision or provision from the terms of our own situation. Sometimes Christians starve, sometimes Christians fall ill. This is not an indication of God turning a blind eye or a lack of faithfulness on the part of this Christian or any such thing. This world is a broken world. It's broken because we broke it. But one day all things being made new, out of necessity, those who have put their faith in Christ will rise from the dead and live with him for all eternity a place where there is never water, where wine should be. And that is an extreme example of what Jesus is showing forth here. What promises will be given to him and through him are things that have never settled in our mind before. Why would Mary come to Jesus about this? We don't know. But what we do know is, one, Jesus does not follow her instructions. She instructs others to follow his instructions. That's something that our Catholic friends would do well to remember. Jesus himself is actually in charge here. Why? Because he is the Savior of the world. So his mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Now, this is something even more fantastic because the reality is every time John writes something, about a single person or a single instance. He is showing them either by bad example what not to be or by good example what to be. Here, he's saying, look, pay attention. You're the servants. Do whatever he tells you. The same thing as Mary is saying to the servants, and then John is putting that in positive light that the servants then followed what Jesus said. John is saying the same thing. When Jesus speaks, you, reader, are to listen and to follow it. And so John turns to the setting. He says, now let me build you a picture. There were six stone water jars that were there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And By the way, that is no small feat. That is anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of water. That's an enormous amount of water Not a fun thing to cart in. 120 to 180 gallons of water total. What does he say to them? Fill them up. And so they filled them up to the brim, all the way to the top, filled with water. Now, if you're one of the servants, what are you doing this for? Well, Mary told us to do this. And then, as far as for listening to him, then he's telling us to fill these places, these jars that are sitting outside the house For people to come and wash their hands before they come into the house, to purify themselves before they come to a a celebration like this. He's telling us to fill these with water. But the problem is, we ran out of wine inside the house. Why in the world would we be doing something like this? Fill the jars with water, they filled them up to the brim, and then Jesus said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the Master. Of the feast. Take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. My friends, do not be distracted by the story. This is not a story about water turning to wine. This is a story about a sign gift that Jesus did here. A certain miracle to depict an aspect of what he is doing in the world. When we taste and see that the Lord is good throughout the Old Testament scriptures, what should we experience but a delightfulness? We should experience that when we see the commandments of the Lord, that they are like honey on our lips. They're a delight to the mind and a cheer to the fainting heart. For those who knew the scriptures before the coming of Christ would look at the scriptures and say, this is fantastic. What a grace that God has given us his law. What a grace that God has given us our kings. What a grace that God has walked with us, though we are unfaithful all these generations. What a grace for God to pull us out of exile twice. What a grace of God to walk with us, provide for us leaders during the, judges, the days of the judges. Provide for us prophets during the days of Elijah and to the latter prophets as well. What a grace for God to travel with us when we were taken to captivity into Assyria and into Babylon and into Persia, the Greeks, and then the Romans thereafter. What a grace, what a mercy for God to walk with us throughout all these things. What they thought they had was marvelous. And it truly was. And then Christ came into the world and showed us that what we as the people of God thought was the tip-top grace of God, thought was the pinnacle of all things, turned out only to be a shadow of the real substance, which is Christ. Last week we were in Colossians 2, and we addressed the reality that some people, having kept certain Sabbaths and feast days and new moons and all of these, are... Our foods and drinks and all of these regulations were simply paying attention to the shadow of the things. But the real thing, casting the shadow, we learned was Christ. And we see this in retrospect, because when Christ came into the world, it surprised everybody. Nobody anticipated his advent in the way that he did. Nobody was looking for a victorious king who was also a suffering servant, This is why you see so many confusing questions to him. Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Are you the one to come into the world? What is is going on? They were asking John the Baptist, they were asking Jesus, and they were so confused. How is it that the disciples of the scribes and Pharisees don't eat or drink in the manner that you do, but you've come into the world, and you're eating and drinking and everything's fine? It's so confusing to so many people, and yet what Christ did was not only surprising to those who had grown up under the Old Testament, but it was also surprising to his own disciples. And it should be surprising to us that what he came to do was not merely more of the same. He was not just another prophet in the long line of prophets. He is the one who sent the prophets. And as he himself has now come, as the Son of God himself stands in the midst of his world as creator as sustainer, and as savior. And this one who comes into the world manifests his glory, and it exudes grace. It is not something just signified and pictured in certain aspects. It is Christ himself, the hope of glory. He actually walks in this world, exuding abundant life wherever he goes. And so while it will surprise us at first, water turns to wine, blind people turn to those who can see, the deaf can hear, the dead are raised to life, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and the sick are healed. Jesus takes all of these signs and he points always to himself. You think you're well, you think you do not need a physician, guess what, I'm not here for you. Only those who know themselves sick look for a solution. Is this not the purpose of the law? To show us our sickness. And what we thought was the full grace of God turned out to be a small piece of a manifold grace of God that is simply overwhelming. How is it that God himself, instead of providing shepherds, would actually come and shepherd his people? How is it that God, having once given the law set in tablets, written and displayed for people to read and see, is now writing the law of God into the hearts of his people, turning our hearts to love those things that God loves and to hate those things that God hates? All of this is depicted in here. Look at these. Why do we have stone water jars here for the Jewish rites of purification? The whole picture here is the reality that this is not the first time we've seen water and stone mixed together as far as pictures are concerned. God has actually expressed this in multiple places in the past, has he not? Moses did this. In the middle of a desert. Actually did it twice. Stone brought forth water. And it was a picture of something That was God's provision for things. It was great. The same thing with the Jewish rites of purification. God had made certain provisions for his people until the coming of Messiah. How? That they would come and wash. But the reality is that they would have to wash over and over and over again every time they came to it. The same thing with sacrifices, is it not? God provided a lamb. God provided a day of atonement. But everyone who comes to the day of atonement knows the moment we leave from here, we begin the countdown to next year, When there will have to be another day of atonement. Christ has come once for all. The picture should be remembered by the time we get to the fourth chapter of John when there is a woman carrying a stone jar that comes to a well wanting to draw out water. And Jesus meets her at the well and says, you think this water is enough? I will give you water that, if you drink, you will never thirst again. Tell me that's not a sign. Tell me that's not a teaching using something like water to depict this. Now she misses it at first. What does she say? Wow, sounds great. If I I hate coming down here at noon every day, it drives me crazy. I have to come here because nobody will look me in the eye. Whatever, I'll just come here and draw my water. But it's a long way. The well is deep. Sounds great. Give me this water so I never have to thirst again. And you know how that story goes. Elijah does the same thing on Mount Carmel. He takes jars filled with water and dumps them all over the sacrifice. All over the altar. Right there on Mount Carmel while the drought is going on throughout the land. And God sends down And he had actually pounded out a trough around the altar to catch all the water. And God sends down a fiery tornado, don't forget that, and not only takes up the altar stones, the sacrifice, but also licks up all the water and pulls it all and burns it to nothing. Same picture. Same picture should be in your mind. There is a reality of purification that had only been partial and temporal in the past. But what Christ is here to do is to purify us once for all. I need you to understand, because we we have gotten so used to the reality of salvation being permanent in our lives, that understanding that that teaching was not taught in the Old Testament, this was something we had to keep doing and keep up and keep coming back for and keep doing. And if we didn't, we could be destroyed at any moment. You have to understand how big of a transition this is. And John is writing to these people and he's expressing to them, look, what has been before is no longer the way of it. Christ has fulfilled not just the temporal responsibilities of purification, he has enacted once and for all a cosmic purification that cannot be undone. Christian, you do not stay a Christian your whole life because you're so good. You stay a Christian your whole life because Christ is saving you. And from the moment of salvation to the end of eternity, which doesn't exist... He cannot not be saving you. That is the nature of his work. It is not once, and see how it works out. And then, well, it doesn't really work out. I'll try something else. No. That's a sign this never happened. We stay faithful to Christ because He is faithful to us, not the other way around. Look at these servants in this story. And take this picture. Imagine you're one of them. You have the cup that's meant for the master of ceremonies here that's putting on this enormous wedding. Who knows how many days into the feast this is. And Jesus comes up to you and says, first, before you try to find more wine, before you try to go down into the town or however you would buy wine like this, he says, look, fill up these jars out here that are meant for washing of hands outside the house fill them up with water all the way. And so you fill them up to the brim, say 150 gallons or so. And you know where that water came from. You didn't draw that out of a well. Something like that almost certainly came out of a river. You don't draw out 150 gallons of water from a well. It doesn't really work like that. Uh, It's a lot harder to do that than you might think. So if you're thinking... Well, I don't know what that's going to exactly do for this, but then the next thing that Jesus comes up to you and says is take that cup, go dip it out of that water that you just filled it up with and take it to the master's ceremonies. His, um, his problem is fixed. What's going through your mind? Are you crazy? He's probably going to have my hands. Why would I take tepid water to the master of ceremonies when he's looking for wine? Why would I take something that's meant for washing hands? I and mean, this would be equivalent to taking someone's wine glass, going to the bathroom, and filling it up from the faucet with tepid warm water and handing it back to them and saying, enjoy. Imagine being this servant. I can't imagine. Their faith is greater than mine would have been. I promise you. And the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. So here's the thing. He's not taking it to the groom. They're taking it to the guy who's in charge of the wedding. You know, if you've ever been to a wedding, usually a wedding planner is the most stressed person in the whole house at that point, including everyone else. And they take it to him. He drinks it, and he's like, Whoa! Not only have you found wine since I mistakenly ran out because it was his job to ensure that there was some, but there's something special about this. This is far grander than any wine we've had before. And so he goes to the groom and he's like, Guys, why didn't you tell me you had some of the most delightful wine ever? We would have served this first. And you can almost hear the way he's saying it. Basically, what a waste! What a waste to wait for everybody to consume all the cheap stuff first and then save this great, awesome stuff for last. We should have we should have served this day one and here we are, day six or seven, we ran out of everything, and then you just wait for the select family reserve of this for some reason? What is going on? How confusing. Why wouldn't you have done it the way it's supposed to be done? He says to the the groom, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. I actually hear rebuke in this guy's voice. It's not just surprise that, wow, it's delicious wine. He's basically like, you made me look bad. You you served the cheap wine first and you say this good stuff, but everyone has drunk so much wine that it's not going to make any difference. I could have looked great serving this stuff first. You've kept the good wine until now? And you let me wonder why we were running out? And John stops the narrative right there and explains to us, this is the first of his signs. And Jesus did it at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. What? The disciples were already following him. They identified him as Messiah. They were following him. They were listening to his teaching. What about this picture makes his disciples believe in him? Because here he, John, expresses it directly. His disciples believed in him. Why? Because he manifested his glory. And what is it that they saw? What they saw is the normal turns to blessing. What they saw is that God's unending provision for his people has broken through the world yet again. You have to understand that the people of Israel had been bemoaning the reality that there had been no prophet in Israel since Malachi for 450 years. Nobody had been doing anything like this. Nothing had been happening. The glory had departed the temple. The prophets were not being sent. The word of the Lord had ceased. And all of a sudden, John says, we were there the day that it broke through again and the glory of God showed up in the faces of his people. And he did it by displaying for them what is meant for normal temporal things he used as a picture to show them eternal and fantastic things. What is he displaying with this gift? It is not that just wine is something to be enjoyed. It's not just one temporal for another thing. It is to express that what you've been waiting for is here. Set down the wine that's cheap. Set down the tepid water. The fine wine is here. Look at the picture of this. Even in the types of wine that are described in this story emulate the nature of God's revelation into the world. John is basically interacting with us and saying, do you not find yourself in the same situation as the Master of Ceremonies? Look at the Old Testament. God has been providing our provisions for all of these thousands of years, how marvelous we thought it was. But then all of a sudden, Christ is coming into the world, and we're saying, you waited until now to give us this? I wondered myself, As a teenager, why didn't Jesus just come into the world after the fall in the Garden of Eden? Wouldn't that have been easier to conceptualize? Wouldn't that have been easier for us to figure out? Unless of this Israel having to go to war and battles and all these types of things, emulating his salvation in temporal pictures that have ramifications for the supernatural world and all these stuff, wouldn't it have been much easier? Why not give us the good wine first? because none of us would have believed in him. None of us. As we look into the Old Testament, we see the same pattern over and over and over again. God tells us a small piece about himself and then spends centuries clarifying until he can show us yet another part. You know, as you read the Old Testament, do not expect to find clear teaching on the Trinity back in the Old Testament. Do you know why? because we would have turned it into a polytheist religion like that. Because that's what the world was awash in. Why the law first, and then the gospel? It is not because God was not saving people from their sins, from Adam forward, because he certainly was. He sent us the law to show us why the gospel is so necessary. But it did not escape our attention even from the earliest chapters of the first book. Abraham believed God, and God accounted it to him as righteousness. That while there was nice wine, as far as God's revelation is concerned, now that Christ has stepped into the world, This is the greatest wine that anyone's ever tasted. While the scriptures and the law of God are fantastic and marvelous and perfect and wonderful, here the word of God himself is walking around in Israel. And this is is taken from John's own pictures. He doesn't even call Jesus after the flesh until several verses in. He starts off by calling him the word of God. He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld this glory. And we have seen it, and it has challenged us, and it has delighted us, and is full of grace and truth, unlike anything we've ever seen. And so when I say that this church and Christian, your life, must be focused on Christ, I mean it. I mean that he is the center of all things. He has made all things. He sustains all things, including our own souls, our own faith, and our own desires. We will be focused on Christ. We will determine to be so, no matter what it costs and no matter the effects. Because it is his glory that we are interested in. It is his kingdom that we belong to. And it is his salvation that we need. After these things, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and stayed there for a few days. There are many times in my life that I have desired to see God face to face. It is not a bad thing to desire. Because we know that it sits in the promises for all who call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. One day we will see him face to face. Do Do you realize what that means? Something that Moses wished for and wasn't allowed to is freely given to all who call upon the name of the Lord now. Something that Moses wished for Show me your glory. And John says, we weren't expecting it, but here we saw it. Think of John's own experience. He's just a fisherman. He was out fixing his nets, and what happens? Jesus walks up to him and goes, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. I'll show you my glory, and nothing will ever be the same. My friends, nothing has ever been the same. We now sit in the presence of one another in the temple, but in the ultimate, we will know one another for all eternity. Let's behave like that. Let's act like that. Let's fellowship under that understanding. And understand that because of that, now we see through a glass dimly. Now we fellowship dimly. But one day, the wine of Christ will flow in a manner that you and I cannot even perceive. We think we have everything marvelous now in the same way as those before Christ thought they had everything marvelous then. We still haven't fully seen our God. And so when we sing of his grace, his marvelous, matchless grace, true it is, but understand we haven't even seen but a small piece of it. Understand that we have not seen God face to face yet, but one day we will, and everything will be made new. The effects of that day will carry through to every part of our being, our existence, and everyone else who calls on the name of the Lord for salvation. And we will know him even as we are known. Do not face your grave with fear. Face it with hope. In a hundred years' time, not a single one of us will be alive. But in a billion years' time, we all will. Isn't that a fantastic reality? May God be delighted. May we delight in his word, and may we follow him wherever he goes. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for your word. It constantly challenges us and shows us aspects of things that you have been planning for thousands and thousands of years in our experience and in our perspective. What we have known has been in your mind in eternity past and future. Father, we aim to serve you from pure hearts, but we know that we only see through a glass dimly. And so we now know that if our purity depends upon us, that we have failed even now. And said, Father, we depend upon Christ, the glory manifested from on high and walking among his people. We pray that his works live out in our hands and in our feet and our mouths and in our minds. And when we fail... We do not come to each other for solutions. We come to Christ alone. We thank you, Father, for the gift of fellowship. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your word. May these things be used and seen rightly by your people. We pray in his name. Amen.